Hello and welcome to the Autism in Real Life podcast. In each episode, you'll get practical strategies by taking a journey into the joys and challenges of life with autism. I'm your host, Ilya Walsh, and I'm an educator and the parent of two young adults, one of which is on the autism spectrum. Join me as I share my experience and the experiences of others so that we may see the unique gifts and talents of individuals on the autism spectrum fully recognized. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Ilya again, and uh, I welcome you all today, and I welcome Hannah Day. How are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Yes, great. So Hannah is an occupational therapist um, and does a lot of wonderful things, but I will let her introduce herself. But I just want to take a, a moment to thank you for being a guest. And I know we have worked together um, before uh, working with early identification programs for educators. And, and we've just had some great chats just <laughs> in addition to, you know, working on other programming. So thank you so much for being here today with me. Well, I couldn't be more honored. And I'm so glad to have the opportunity to chat with you and to all of your amazing um, uh, listeners. And, uh, you know, this is my job is something I'm incredibly passionate about. So to get to talk about what I'm passionate about is, is honestly a gift these days. So um, I am an occupational therapist. Um, I've been an OT for about 10 years now. Um, I specialize in pediatrics, but I've worked in a variety of settings across the lifespan, specializing in children with autism spectrum disorder. Um, currently, I work in a public school system, and I have my own private practice uh, specializing in home-based therapy with families. So this is kind of similar to what they might get with um, an ABA therapy or applied behavioral analysis therapy in the home, but we do OT. Um, ABA is something that I've worked with and alongside for most of my career as well, so it's something that um, I try to fold into the principles of ABA into OT um, myself, but I have a family member with autism, and it is the thing that got me interested in becoming an OT, so it's something that's near and dear to my heart and has always been a core aspect of who I am as I ident identify as an occupational therapist. So thank you again for having me. I'm so excited to have these conversations and let people know a little bit more about OT. Yeah, no, and and I, you know, I know how passionate you are about the topic, and I think that just makes it more interesting and more exciting to have uh, someone who loves it so much. And I think it's also a testament to the profession. Um, my dearest friend is an OT, and um, you know, <laughs> she she brings so much. And I know we've had this conversation, but. Um, OT thinking is got a different lens, which I appreciate so much. And, you know, I think one of the things that I wanted to raise awareness with this uh, particular episode was first, you know, what is occupational therapy? And I think 
there's <clears throat> like some misconceptions. I know I had them early on. Um, and so can we just like define what occupational therapy is and, and, you know, how, uh, let's start there. I think that's probably Absolutely. the best place to start. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something that I, I think we've had this and I've told you this anecdote before, but I remember being in graduate school for OT and there was a group of people, all OTs at various levels of their schooling and our director of the program asked us for someone to stand up and say what occupational therapy is. And nobody asked or volunteered to do it. So it's something that sometimes we even have a hard time identifying and, and labeling. So um, I think, you know, a lot of people hear OT and they immediately, I'm not sure why, but associate with physical therapy. And I think right. why that is, as human beings, physical therapy is a lot easier to understand because <laughs> it's a little bit more black and white and concrete. If you have an injury, they identify the injury, the cause of the injury, and they work to repair the injury so that you're whole again. Um, occupational therapy, um, the word occupation is really important in understanding what it is that we do because it's about what you do with it with your time, what you do occupying your time. So occupation, not thinking about job as much as the word occupy. So what do you do and what do you need to do? Um, so being in pediatrics, occupation is very functional. So it's what you need to do across your day. So that is to go to school, to play, to do activities of daily living, going to the bathroom or getting dressed, those types of things. Um, across the lifespan, everyone does different things. They need to do different things. So occupational therapists are professionals that uh, specialize in, in uh, occupation. So what you do to occupy your time and how to participate um, with the most optimal amount of function and independence across your day. So we're very participation-based and function-based. So all about what you need to do and how you do it across your day. Okay. So yeah, so that, I mean, it, and when you say it that way, it sounds like, wow, that's super interesting because I know <laughs> it has so much to do with, um, and this is like an interest of mine, obviously, but, but neurology and, and yeah. neurology and physicality kind of meet, especially for the population that we're talking about, but not just, I mean, I would say, right. Occupational therapy can be uh, a lever that's used for all different types of um, situations, right? Yes, across the lifespan, so various ages, um, stages of life, and for different reasons. And that's why it's very, one thing I wanted to talk to your audience about is, is really understanding why it is that someone's telling you you need an occupational therapist, because that specialist is likely identifying an area where the person they're discussing is not optimally functioning for some reason. And part of our jobs is to look at what is it that they need to be doing that they're not doing and how can we help them have more success in doing it. And that's where our profession is such a gray area because it is physical in nature. When we do things, we're physically doing them. But it also involves all aspects of, of cognition, so how you organize yourself how you process information, how you interact with your environment. Um, and that's why we specialize in things like sensory, because that is an aspect that influences how you take in information and how your body reacts to the information that it's being given. But as OTs, we also do tend to really um, 
specialize. So myself, I identify as a pediatric occupational therapist because that's what I specialize in. I specialize in understanding what it is that children need to do, the kinds of occupations that they they engage with, and how to optimize that, how to make them the the most independent participator in those occupations. And that's different than say, if you or I had an injury and how an OT might help you or I as a grown up with different types of occupations, responsibilities, and sort of diagnoses. Um, and it is in that sense, and it's a job that really is defined by the context that that OT is working in. Right. I, and I think you mentioned something, especially with pediatrics. Um, I, I think, and I've heard, I heard this before when I was uh, learning about early uh, identification and early intervention, is the concept that children's job is like a child's job is not just to be a student and to learn, right, to go to school, right. but to play. And I really thought that that was, uh, I was like, of course it's to play, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's how children learn is by playing and experimenting and exploring. And so I found it, um, like, I found it really cool that play is such a big piece because I also know when we're looking at a young child um, and looking to say, okay, are there, you know, were you noticing that there's something um, that we need to take a closer look at and developmentally? Oftentimes it is this concept of play and sometimes we don't know, right? We don't, we don't notice as parents, let's say, or maybe even as an educator, that play, um, the type of play that the child might be engaging in could be an indicator. So I guess that, that leads me to the question of when do we know it's like, oh, right? You said like, we know, when do we know that it's okay to go seek an OT evaluation? Because I think sometimes when we say, oh, we, there's this blanket thing of, it feels like we need to have a child evaluated, right? Evaluation is mm -hmm. a big thing. And there's all these different um, providers and practitioners that we need to enlist in order to get all those evaluations done. And it's a very overwhelming process for everyone. Um, and OT is often one of those. Um, so, so when do we know that it, that's like one of the things that we want to look at? That's a great question. Um, and I think sometimes so many families are told to get this evaluation, get an OT evaluation, but they don't themselves understand why. So this is the sort of main reason I was so excited to talk to your audience, because one thing I really wanted to encourage folks um, is when you're told to get an occupational therapy evaluation, definitely have a conversation with the person who's referring you, who's telling you that this would be helpful, and the person who you end up seeking out for that OT evaluation and have a conversation and give yourself some time to process what it is that my child is not doing that I want or need them to be able mm -hmm. to do. Um, and that may be play for some of our mm -hmm. young kids. It might be that, um, you know, they might have really rigid play. They're really defined by, you know, playing with just this one puzzle because it has letters and they really like letters and they take the puzzle pieces out and they put it in and that's how they play. But they were given all these toys and they just sit in the room and they don't play with them. And like you said, that could be indicative of maybe not being able to. And, you know, I, 
one thing that we look at as an OT um, is these client factors. So does the child have intact sensory processing? Are they able to take in this information in their environment through all of their senses and make sense of it to be able to function? So that might be an area where you say, you know, my child's really sensitive to, to clothing. I know I was listening to your um, mm-hmm. sensory podcast episode and, you know, that's a really big common thing that sensitivities with certain um, sensory inputs that make it difficult to get dressed or to wear a variety of clothing. So that's an area where you'd say, you know, my child being the person they are, I am expecting them to be able to wear the clothes that I have in their closet. And if they're not doing it, that's a reason to reach out to an OT because that's something that in their life they need to be doing and they're not able to because of their sensory sensitivities. It's not your job as a parent or a caregiver to necessarily identify why it is you think they're not doing it, but just to know that your child hasn't been able to learn to tie your, their shoes, just even though you've told them and shown them over and over, that could be indicative of motor planning issues. So these are all factors of a person um, that we would look at and say, you know what, their motor planning skills are making it more difficult for them to learn in their environment. And that's an aspect of the way that they take in information that makes it difficult for them to learn like somebody else. And that's something we would work on them with. But as the caregiver, or the person in their life identifying these things, it's really important to ask yourself, what are they not doing that they should be doing or that I need them to be doing? It might also be something they are doing that you don't want them to be doing that could be inhibiting <laughs> things, of course, too. It's, I think, more common to find things that you want or need them to be able to do. But oftentimes I find people come to me and they say, I don't know why I'm coming to you. Um, right. But, you know, this has been problematic. I had a family reach out to me this summer because their child was having a really hard time with transitions. And I said, well, that's something they need to do in their life. And that makes it OT because we transition all day long. So let's talk about some (laughs) strategies. I'm not guaranteeing that I have some magic wand that's going to work. But that is part of something that I as an OT know how to help you with because that's something we have to do in our life. And that makes it OT. (laughs) Right. And that's such an important point because I think... Um, if I even think back to seeking out an evaluation for my son, Mm -hmm. you know, OT was suggested, he was a little older. um, And, you know, I I didn't, I don't think I really knew why, because I don't really think I knew, even though I had um, this friend who was the first person to say to me, you know, maybe there are some sensory issues uh, with your son, and you might want to look at that. Here are some resources to look through and see if any of this kind of resonates with you, and much of it did. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of knew maybe from that perspective, but I didn't know that OT was totally related, even though she was my friend. I didn't really know like that was a connection. And So, yeah, so our son had an OT evaluation, but that feels so broad now from what you're telling me. It's like, well, what, what, I mean, I could, now I know back looking back, Mm, what, what, why, (laughs) Um, but, but again, it still could be a tall order, right? So if we're looking at things like handwriting or being able to just hold a pencil or a crayon properly, or being able to put on your clothes or being able to tie shoes or being able to open up packages, right? These are all the things that I'm guessing fall under your, you know, purview. Yeah. Yes. And I think, you know, OTs often people's experience with them tends to be specific to one aspect of our discipline. For instance, being in public school, I often 
um, and am discussing handwriting or how they're, you know, grasping a pencil or using scissors or other school-based tools. Um, but we, you know, we are looking at their underlying fine motor skills or their visual motor skills or that motor planning piece as underlying factors. And an OT becomes involved because they specifically identify those areas as inhibiting their ability to participate. Um, and I think that, that that recognizing, you know, I have teachers come to me and say, I think they need an OT eval. And I say, can you tell me what it is that they aren't doing in the classroom that you need them to be able to do? Because that's mm -hmm. really going to guide me as the therapist to look at why isn't it that that child isn't holding those uh, scissors correctly or they're switching their hands all the time with that. Um, mm -hmm. utensil and they're not establishing a hand dominance. So I'm looking at the the thing that the people are noticing that's inhibiting them to participate in school because they aren't independent with these things that their teachers are expecting them to be at. It's my job to figure out sort of what that root causes and determine whether it's something that falls under my skill set and purview in terms of the interfering reason why they aren't able to perform in that way and identifying that particular area. That's what makes OT even more broad, though, because we do right. specialize in all these different areas of visual motor, fine motor, motor planning, um, sensory motor, sensory processing. There's all these different areas. Um, you know, OT has a very long history, um, starting in in the um, you know era of 1960s, 1970s, where it first became a really um, a really big thing, it, you know, established itself as they're beginning to um, deinstitutionalize individuals who have significant cognitive disabilities. And the way the OT was founded and started was they they took up in these um, institutions. They had people doing things with their hands, so they had them knitting or crocheting um, or doing projects and sort of craft projects. And so it was born out of this use of their hands, which is this funny mm. way of understanding our history as a profession. And it's kind of why, you know, like back in the old days of the 1980s and 90s, we were really splitting the body into two across the belly button and saying <laughs> lower half is physical therapy, upper half, including the head is OT, which is is a weird way of thinking. We don't yeah. think about it that way anymore. But if you think about occupation and what you do occupying your time, it does make more sense that we became the hands people because it's really hard <laughs> to do a job without your hands, right? Um, but right. it is funny because people say, why is it that you guys do fine motor? Um, mm. You know, that's such a, it seems like such a specific thing to, to get into fine motor or handwriting while you also do all these other things. Um, and that's, I mean, it's kind of boring, but it's the actual history. No, of, I really, of I didn't know from. that. That's yeah. so, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, you say the old days, like the 1980s, yeah, I, know. I mean, that's Gosh, not so that long, long ago, ago, right? And, <laughs> and it, it sort of speaks to how new and if, you know, I guess evolutionary the, the profession is and, and cont continuously learning and refining new things, right? Yeah. I think OT really made a, they really, as, as a profession, we've really evolved with the 80, with the, um, you know, accessibility act with, with the Americans with disabilities act, 
we really came up with that because that is so much like I don't know if your audience has has watched um, the movie Crip Camp, uh, C-R-I-P, I I believe it's on Netflix. Uh, It's a fascinating um, story about individuals with um, primarily physical impairments, um, a lot of people recovering from polio and that sort of thing in the 60s, and they had this whole camp, and it was about their ability to access summer camp like everybody else including all of the like romantic sides of things and all these other things. And as an OT, I watched this and thought, wow, they really created for themselves how to have what it is that they wanted to access. Like if as OTs looking back on something like that, now that's something we would have been involved in, but it was so new age for them to have their own space and time to be able to have these and engage in these occupations of you know, playing baseball, they made everybody play baseball, whether you could walk, whether you were in a wheelchair, everybody played, and there was sort of no excuse for not playing. Um, It's this very interesting uh, way that I look at it as, you know, OTs came up around, you know, as as a profession, we really changed, evolved and developed into the what we are now around that same philosophy, but it was just hard, you know, it wasn't, accepted in the in the world yet um and so i think the the world we live in now is is different and is amazing that ot's you know have this profession where we help people become the most independent and you know participatory members of society they can be that's that's what our dream is for everybody so as you say that what i'm thinking is um really making things accessible um and you know, making things, I mean, so like when you say before, like everyone being able, you know, everyone being expected to play baseball. Now, how we do that might be different for each person in, let's say, that camp case. And what I think about is I had this student, and I, I probably told this story somewhere else before, but <laughs> I had a student where um, it was first grade, and I, I was subbing in for the day. And uh, he was having trouble using a glue stick and it was uh, and one of the, the worksheet that was left was cutting out the picture and matching it to the consonant sound, um, you know, the first letter of the word. Right. Right. <laughs> and so he, you know, the the other person in the room who was the uh, para professional in the room had said to me, you know, he can't do that. So he won't be able to do that. He you know, so we'll have to come. I said, well, you know, let me let me just let me give it a shot. <laughs> and yep. so what I discovered was not that he didn't know the answers. It was that he, his barrier was the glue stick, um, cutting a little bit, but more, more the piece sticking to the, his fingers and the glue stick was just not a thing. The glue stick was out. So, <laughs> so I said, well, he doesn't like the glue stick. Why don't we just try tape? You know, Mm -hmm. like, let's bring tape. Let's see if he can do that. And sure enough, he was able to put all of the right pictures with the right letters with the tape. And um, though I was chastised for allowing him to use tape because that wasn't something that the students were allowed to use in the classroom because... They, they they couldn't be trusted with tape apparently, so <laughs> so my thing is is why don't we teach them how to use tape? But anyway, um, aside. But from it was that, so um... what you did there is so important and so occupation based, which is this is you know this is a big take home message from me to your audience that I want people to understand is that 
concept that really OT is, is embedded in is what do you want that student to get out of what you're doing? You want them to independent as independently as possible, whether it's glue stick or tape is irrelevant because it wasn't mm -hmm. about measuring the child's ability to use a glue stick. Um, <laughs> it was about measuring the child's independent understanding of a, a phonics concept is what I'm guessing. Um, right. And yes, to some degree, you want to see them do that multi-step task of sequencing too, being able to cut something and being able to place it and accurately match it. Those are all really important skills. But what you were able to do, and this is something that's so important for educators, parents in the COVID environment right now to understand mm, is sure. when you're tackling something like that, any kind of project, whether you're, you're having them wrap, you know, a birthday present, or you're having them complete a math worksheet they were given for their asynchronous COVID homework this week, um, <laughs> What do you want them to be able to do? Is it the most important thing that they write those numbers down themselves on the math sheet? Or is the most important thing that they are able to do the math work themselves? And maybe you write the answers down for them because that's what's important. And I think sometimes as, as parents, as caregivers, as educators, we get kind of stuck sometimes at small barriers like a glue stick within the process because we're so interested in having that exact product at the end. And I think as OTs, we're, we are really about the process, but we're about making that process as independent and successful as possible so that in the end, the product is as close to what it should be. For instance, the, the phonic, you know, the letters that that child was engaging with were stuck down, which was the important aspect of that product, <laughs> that they weren't falling off of the paper right. as, you, as you hung it on the wall or you put it in a folder. But the important part wasn't the using the glue stick. That's something we can accommodate around. And that's something OT in, is involved in a lot. And I think that that's another thing that sort of separates us as a therapy from others is a big part of what we do is not just remediation. It's not just improving a skill, um, but it's around accommodation or adaptation. Um, right. And how do we work around certain barriers because of a child's presentation, but still making them as independent as possible within that exact, um, you know, activity or, or skill. Yeah. So as you say that, I can totally see how, you know, occupational therapy is something that is obviously across the lifespan for a variety of different reasons, for a variety of different people. Uh, help me understand what that looks like, whether you're, because I know you you do both, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we have, we've done some evaluation around assuming something very specific or things that we're noticing. And now we have the, the output of what needs to be worked on, right? So we get that. Now, what does that look like at school? And then what does that look like in, I mean, you know, I, I think of it as, um, I think you, you're in a home setting as well, but there's also like outpatient setting, right? Where you yeah. would, yeah. So those are like the three different buckets. So can, can we understand what, what those would look like? Because I know there's different constraints around all of them. Absolutely. And it's kind of what I was mentioning before about context. So the context of the environment or the sort of location, if you will, of where that OT is working is often going to drive a lot of what it is that they do or they specialize in. So to answer your question sort of generically, um, 
school, so I work in it, part of what I do is I work in a school system. Um, as I mentioned, uh, one thing that we really strive to do is, is look at what a child is or is not doing across their day based on what the expectations are. Um, you know, we use the term a lot of, of curriculum. So what are the, what is the general education curriculum that that child is faced with? And what are they presenting in terms of their skills, their strengths, their weaknesses? And how is that influencing their job as a student? So a lot of just sort mm-hmm. of, I could probably go on an entire podcast about <laughs> what it is that we might look at in a school, but what's important is that the occupation is, is of a student. So things students need to do are bring materials to school, pack and unpack their backpack, be able to um, operate all of the components of their clothing if they were to go to the bathroom or get their coat on or tie their shoes. So those are things that we look at across their day that is, they are expected to do. You know, sometimes they're not expected, say, in kindergarten to be able to do all those things, but that's what makes it unique is that we look at what is the expectation at that age, grade, stage. It's still very developmental. Um, you know, we're not asking a five-year-old to demonstrate, you know, typing skills of, you know, 20 words per minute. That's not appropriate (laughs) for their curriculum or their age and stage. Um, And that's, you know, school is very what they need to be able to do in school. And do they have the skills to be able to do that? Can they open the glue stick? And if not, perhaps they need some, um, maybe they need some remediation around hand strength. Maybe it's uh, something they can't actually physically open, or maybe it's something around sensitivity. And that's something we still address. Um, You know, school base is a little removed from sensory unless it impacts their day across their day. For instance, maybe a tactile sensitivity is impacting that preschool student from being able to play in the um, in the sand at recess and there's kind of sand all over the place because we all know preschoolers if it's in one place it's in a million places and that's really impacting their success at at playground time and so they're having a lot of meltdowns over that so that might be an area we identify as not going well in a school system in the home what i you know me and my partner who started um their partners our home-based practice uh, what makes it unique is we identified that sometimes in an outpatient setting, families are not always involved in therapy. So, you know, we often see OTs work in sensory integration clinics or, or small clinics that have a sort of sensory component and they still might work on visual motor and fine motor skills of practicing writing and drawing and cutting. Um, and they have some time in a motor space to warm up their bodies and get well-regulated, work on upper extremity strength, um, which is excellent because I think a lot of, a lot of uh, students can use a little extra time and practice outside of their school day to get that. It's kind of almost like you might go for math tutoring if math is still really mm-hmm. hard for you. You might go get some OT to build up some of those areas. What's different is we, you know, within the OT practice, we sometimes consider that a medical model versus a school-based model. So the lens that you look through is more insurance-based. It's more doctors referring a student. And it's a little different because oftentimes you have to think of the payer in that respect. So it's often an insurance company and insurance companies is a whole different topic, but they might 
really dictate what that therapy looks like and needing to prove that um, this is a skill that's impacting their life and this is why, um, and this is why they okay. need to have that therapy. Um, home-based is a little different. Um, I think that it's, a, it's an up and coming context that's kind of newer for us. I think we've, you know, with, with the COVID these days, we've noticed a lot of regression in, in children because they've spent so much time at home, but parents have begun to notice, oh, you know, now that they're home, I'm noticing they're not doing this or they're doing this and I wouldn't expect them to. What's great about home bases is you're really practicing within the context of their home environment. Um, a lot of people who are neurologists or of that similar field will tell you the brain does best to learn in the environment that it's going to be completing that skill. So if I'm learning to dress and I have the choice between learning in a uh, outpatient setting or learning in my own bedroom, it's really best for the brain to learn that in the bedroom, which is why this setting is, is new and upcoming, but is also really valid and, and really important for a lot of students, particularly um, people with on the autism spectrum, because their neuroplasticity is different than other people. And the way their brain learns is very environmentally specific. And so learning to get dressed in the environment they will actually get dressed in translates and integrates quicker and better. Okay. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm thinking, though, there's a couple things I'm thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you're saying that, I see an overlap um, and, and, and I know this is a little bit off topic, but it's such an, uh, an interesting thing. And, and for those who have listened to, um, the Carol Kranowitz podcast with some strategies around, uh, sensory processing, you know, I'm, I'm, we've, we've, I've mentioned, and I've talked about sensory diets, right? Like for regulating the body. And, and I feel like, you know, there's, and I, I hope this isn't like the first epiphany I'm having about this, but, but there's this like overlap between emotional regulation and possibly a, a sensory or like physical regulation. I mean, I guess I know like if you exercise more, that can be better for, you know, emotional regulation and things like that. But, but like, as far as um, a discipline between, you know, with OT, is that, it do it does it overlap a lot like that yes and uh, and you totally nailed it which is there is such overlap and interplay between your emotional state your social emotional state um your emotional regulation and your sensory system and that is a pretty black and white answer as to why that is which is your central nervous system which is your mm -hmm. emotions and your sensory regulation are all processed processed in that same area and so, so when we talk if about, you're upset, I'm sorry, yeah, keep going. Go yeah, yeah. If, no, go if ahead. you're upset and you're, you're, you know, crying and maybe you're breathing a lot deeper, your heart is racing, you're a little bit warmer, you're really, you know, you're really having a hard time, a tough time in that moment. Oftentimes we all seek, not everybody, because everybody's systems are different. We seek a hug, which is that deep pressure that we talk mm -hmm. so much about, um, heavy work or deep pressure. So you're calming the body by getting deep pressure, which is bringing your emotional and your just general regulation state down into a more regulated state. And that's what you're using. Even when you're upset, you are using sensory. So I like to think about it as 
sensory can be a tool as much as it can be the cause of what's going on. You could be dysregulated because you didn't like that glue stick touching your fingers and getting all over your hands. But what it did was it actually made you upset. So yes, the cause was sensory, but there was still Mm -hmm. some emotional state going on. The solution to that problem may also be sensory, which is to say um, you might be getting a hug or you might go wash your hands and then have someone do some deep pressure to your hands afterwards. Um, And you might do some deep breathing to try to calm your system down a little bit. But there is such interplay between your emotional state and your sensory system. And a lot of people um, with attentional problems see that too, which is um, I'm having a really hard time paying attention. Um, Maybe someone who has an attentional disorder Um, and sensory works really well. Now, does that mean you have a sensory regulation problem? Well, not so much because sensory is one of those just amazing tools that helps your body calm. It doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. mean that there's dysfunction in that area though. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think this is really fascinating because you mentioned before, you know, being part of a team when working with someone. I mean, I think this really speaks to why (laughs) it's only one of the reasons, but why a team is so important working with an individual because you have all of these different disciplines, but they all play into each other and overlap. Absolutely. And I think if you polled you know, 100 OTs, you'd probably get a 100% response in saying we would prefer to work with another member of an an interdisciplinary team versus working on our own. Right. And so who would normally be on this team? I know I I think I've talked about this in the past, but I I don't think I was comprehensive enough, honestly. So uh, if like when you're working with students, or in a home-based setting, what does that team look like? Who, who would they traditionally consist of? That's a great question. I think a lot of it is unique to that individual and what sure. um, is going on for them. And, and they might have a variety of, of things they're working on and skill areas that they're trying to improve. Um, but in a school setting, we work very closely with special educators in general, occupational therapy, at least in Massachusetts, and this might definitely be different internationally and in other respects, um, different parts of the U.S. or different aspects of a school system. But largely, at least in Massachusetts, we are considered a related service, which falls under a special education umbrella. So we often work very closely with special educators, obviously a classroom teacher, Sometimes Mm -hmm. um, a a BCBA or um, a board certified behavior analyst. Um, So Mm -hmm. someone dealing with a behavior, particularly as you say, when sometimes aspects of a child might involve as much uh, an emotional regulation component could be counselors, uh, guidance counselors, um, physical therapists, of course, speech therapists, absolutely. Um, The same goes for an outpatient setting. We often work hand-in-hand with physical therapists and speech therapists in an outpatient rehab kind of setting. Um, And in in homes, I've worked with ABA therapists or BCBAs as well. Um, But most importantly, of course, is is parents and families across the uh, board in any context is really um, them being a huge component of that team. 
Right. And I think this is, um, you know, when we're looking at this, this goes back to the, the why, in my opinion, um, of, you know, the families knowing what is happening and why and mm-hmm. what the what what is what's the work being done in all of these different modalities. And then when you look at the work, then what's expected at home, because I think sometimes um you know, a family might not know what's happening at school day to day. I mean, I would hope the communication is really open and there's ways to know all that all that information. But um, again, that's another thing to look for as a, as a family as a member or a parent, um, looking for, you know, what is happening uh, and what kind of um, skills are we working on during the day? And then is there something that I am expected to do at home um, and so it's, it's a really uh, comprehensive kind of a holistic, I guess, is a better word, approach to working with a student. Absolutely. I think, you know, two things I think of when you say that. The first is um, how important it is for therapists or for children, I should say, therapists of, of students or children who um, get multiple services. So I might be the school-based therapist, but they might also see an outpatient therapist. That's not uncommon too, because we might be working on similar things, but in different contexts. So the outpatient person might be working more on their um, self-dressing skills, for instance, or more on their sensory regulation skills. And I might be doing more of their um, handwriting or visual motor, but oftentimes we see overlap in the types of things we're working on. So um, it is really important for parents not to forget to to make sure to connect those therapists. We always want to talk to each other to make sure that we're doing things similarly. We're addressing things in a in a sort of with good continuity. We're not confusing a child because there is nothing worse than being told yeah. to do it one way by one person in a different way from another person and those two people might not know the other one even exists so (laughs) definitely sharing with your teams who the other people on your teams are so important and you know everyone I've ever worked with is is quite good at it at connecting people but um, you know it's a busy world we all live in and we forget those things and it's just something to remember that you know anybody on your team even if they're not working closely together on the same team if your child is involved and they see your child they're on the same team in one way or another so that's right um, yeah and I think the thing that's that that it's making me think about is um when we're looking at the the multitude of services that students can you know can get or may receive um you know while we do have a disparity of some people not getting quite enough there also might be the situation where that there are a lot a lot of need and then you know we can't um, my common thing is you can't take on everything all at once we can't have like you know a thousand different goals um so we sometimes need to prioritize and if we're not um totally sure of the why like you said or who else is involved in this team you know we can't accurately prioritize I don't think absolutely I totally agree and I I think one thing I really wanted your audience to take um, home from this conversation is how important it is to you know to really give yourself time and encourage yourself in really checking in about a larger vision of your child's life or of your um, 
of your student's life. I mean, whatever your connection is to the person that you're thinking of when you're hearing this or what your experience is with, with OT is try to take a few, you know, 10 steps back, 10 years <laughs> step back and really think like, what, what do I want for my child? What do I want them to be able to do? Do I want them to be able to independently log into Zoom when they're given their weekly schedule. Um, I mean, I know a lot of us are thinking about that <laughs> is, these days. Yeah, I want yeah. them to be able to to live on their own when they or go to college or have the skills to be able to take care of themselves um, in whatever kind of life setting that they have once they leave the schools. Um, and, and not to lose sight of that because all these little goals, I mean, that's really an OT's way of thinking is, what kind of life do you want for them? Because those are the types of things that we want to teach your child from a very young age to be able to have all those little skills that build up to make that person the independent 18, 19, 20, you know, 40 year old, however old they are. And it's, you know, it's really important because, you know, you're so bombarded when you have a child who's recently diagnosed with autism, oh, you have to do this, you have to get 40 hours of this, and you have to get that. And everyone's telling it to you, like, if you don't, you, you know, you're there's the worst parent ever, not realize, you know, not always giving you the inside clue that there's a two year wait list for this or that, <laughs> or, you know, it's, you get overwhelmed with being told to do this without maybe necessarily pointing to the why to what it is about their function. Um, right when it is about their life that will prevent them from being the, the independent, you know, functional person they could be at in a few years without it. And I think that we really lose track of, of giving parents and, and caregivers time to really process what it is that they want for their child, be it in a year or in the five years. My favorite part of an IEP meeting is the vision conversation. Mm, what do you want right. to see for your child? Because I think that we zip past that. It's one of the first things in Massachusetts we go over. We ask parents to give some time thinking about it ahead of time often. Um, but sometimes I think that we we forget to really talk about that, particularly as they're starting to, you know, round the age of 12, 13, 14, and things start to feel a little bit more serious. Um, really thinking about what your child's life might look like and the kinds of things we should be working on to make sure we're we're aiming towards that vision the best we can. Right. And and of course as as that student reaches the transition planning time, um it seems like a theme today. I've been talking a lot about transition yeah. planning today, but but then it, the vision becomes a uh a co-created vision between um, the student and the family, um, yeah. and really leaning more towards the student's vision. And so it, it is like this, it's like the pre-work before you get to <laughs> the, the bigger meat of the, of the puzzle. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, as we're talking about this, and of course we, we can't ignore the fact that we're, um, we're in the midst of COVID and, yeah. <laughs> what the what the impact has been on um on these types of services what have you i mean i know i actually did a zoom call with you while you were <laughs> at school and i i mean i could see and i was just a glimpse of what, into what um your day might look like but what what have, what has what has changed for you know for you specifically and for people who are doing that same kind of work well you know i 
I have to be honest with you. I see so many silver linings. Um, you know, they're small, they're skinny, they're very, you know, <laughs> very shiny, skinny little linings of a very dark cloud that we often feel. But um, what I will say is I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the time that parents have gotten with their students being students to really see the kind of learner their child is. And sometimes that's very eye-opening. Um, mm. Sometimes it can be a little jarring. But it's, you get to see your student in a way that you didn't get to see because now the context of them learning is no longer school, it is home. Um, right. And what I will say is I encourage that some parents feel like they have a better grasp of the type of learner their child is and the things that work for them and don't work for them. I feel like it's kind of you're on one side of, of the coin or the other. It's either really working for you and you kind of never wish to go back to school because you can concentrate so much better at home or you couldn't possibly survive another day and you need to be in school <laughs> tomorrow because you want to see your friends and you need and you need to be able to see your your people 3D, which I think is, right. is uh, something that people have have not realized how much it matters in their life to sort of see, smell, touch, and be around mm -hmm. people. Um, and that's the, that's the human being part of all of us. Um, but what I will say is to take the time while you have it. Um, one thing I, I found myself reflecting on recently is oftentimes we sit in um, meetings, whether it's in the outpatient clinic or um, you know, at an IEP meeting with families, and we're talking about, you know, independence, like, are they getting themselves dressed in the morning? Well, pre COVID, our mornings, I don't know about you, but they are fast, and there's no time to be working on skills. Um, we right. have such little time to get out the door and asking them to do something is the like straw that broke the camel's back. And all of a sudden, we're really upset and dysregulated going into school. So the silver lining of being at home is that you might have a little bit more time to be working on some of those um, living skills that haven't gotten as much attention um, because of the pace of life in the past. Um, I'm encouraged by how many families have said, oh, my child started doing chores and they're they're helping <laughs> out with doing this or that. And to me as an OT, it's it's amazing. And it's it's a very significant um, silver lining because they're participating in aspects of their their day and their family that they didn't engage in before. And that's right. a new skill and that's to be valued. Um, very significantly. So I will say it is difficult. And I think our lives being so confined to one space. Um, one thing I will say that has been sort of a cloudier lining to things is that children who have sensitivities to certain inputs that tended to get uh, a little bit more sensitive across the board. I mean, I don't mean to overgeneralize for people, mm -hmm. but that might be something that some people in your audience are recognizing in their own lives that because their child is really auditorily sensitive, for instance, um, and they haven't had as much exposure to sound, now when we go grocery shopping, it's actually worse and that kind right. of thing. So really keeping track of what's going well as much as what's maybe, you know, getting a little bit worse because we haven't had as much exposure to the world. Um, and, you know, that's one thing I've noticed for, for people in my life is that those sensitivities have tended to get a little bit more significant without the daily life of 
of school and regular routines and engagement and activities the way they might have had before. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point because um, one of the things I had (laughs) this was early on uh, I would say you know I don't know maybe April or May when there was light conversation about transitioning back but here we are I don't know whatever six seven months later depending on where you're living but um, you know this this concept of transitioning back and I'm using big quotes back to whatever normal was right <laughs> you know I, I think it's 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 going to be and just from my observations and people that I work with and live with um, transitioning back is going to be very or just to whatever is new I think is uh, everyone is having a different experience about that. I think it's, you know, it has, it's going to be slow. And I think we all have to be really kind and gentle with ourselves and with the people around us, because for everyone, I think it's going to be a very unique experience. And, and to your point about, about the environment and having limited exposure, accessibility, also depending on the age of the person that we're talking about, right, all of that is going to impact what the, you know, I hate saying the new normal, but whatever, whatever lays before us, right, or lies before us as we move through. Absolutely. I think, you know, the first thing that you and I talked about in regards to OT was play. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think within educators that are around me and and conversations I've been a part of and heard, um, I think my greatest concern not to overemphasize any one particular group over another because that's certainly not fair but these particular you know the kids who have bounced back the quickest but really have needed it the most to me is your your young young population so for me the preschoolers um you know the kids who had really intervention and turned three and god forbid april or may and then weren't able to come to preschool until very recently. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy that for the most part, people in our lives are are recognizing that and doing the best to make those um, students a priority and getting back to seeing one another because playing with a grown up is very different than playing with a child, um, and and that is for any age child, but particularly young ones as they're learning to navigate these different stages of play. Um, and really needing peers to be able to learn that and to model from and to problem solve with. Um, and I think that's definitely the new normal of, you know, I, I look at our preschool and we have kids at their own little picnic tables and they're six feet apart and it's hard for them to see, you know, some of them have their back to one another and, you know, some of the way that we learn as as young humans is to watch what others are doing. and so. Just that alone, I walk into those and I say, can we at least turn them so they're facing each other, even if they're like 12 feet away? Like but, a giant circle, right? Right, right. Like they have good eyesight. They can see across the room, but they need to, be able to look at each other. So at least that they have that like small opportunity. Um, some of these kids don't have siblings at home to be playing right. with or modeling off of. So um, if there's definitely a lot to it. And the new normal um, is has been good for some kids. Um, yeah. And it's been really hard for, for others. And I think it's important to recognize in your child, maybe areas 
you've seen that were better before and what they are specifically um, and how, you know, how the people in your child's life can help um, to recognize those and, and to get back to the place that they were before and to continue to make progress. I think so many, we hear from so many parents every day, they're just glad that they're at school. And I think kids <laughs> feel that way too. I know yeah. we feel that way. I was myself probably struggling as much as anybody else, any other child with the whole doing therapy over a computer, because that's not what I would want. Um, right. And I don't think it's what anybody wants. So um, I, you know, there are silver linings, but I do think that everyone is is working hard to make sure our kids can see one another in whatever way that that looks so they can continue to grow and to learn. So important. And I I mean, again, I, as I said before, I just, um, I commend you and the work that you do and all the people that are part of um, a team that work with, you know, students and other individuals, um, you know, all of this is so important and, and it was important before, but I think now we're going to see even more important importance placed on it as we go forward because the paradigm is shifting. And, um, you know, I just appreciate all of you for all educators. However, you know, we, I think that's a very Absolutely. large bucket, um, but, but really working so hard and really, um, wanting to do what is in the best interest of their students. So thank Absolutely. you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to discuss something I just love. And I'm, I, I recognize every day that I'm a very lucky person to love what I do as much as I do. And I think, you know, it makes a big difference in, in lives these days um, to like what you do, because some of these things feel very hard day to day, yes. um, but it makes it a lot easier to get up and, and to do them um, when you get to, to do something you're so passionate about. So thank you again for giving me the opportunity to discuss this. Um, thank it's you. It's a and wonderful thing that you're doing as well. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And I think your students are, uh, and, and anyone that you're working with is really lucky to have you. So thanks again. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch at some point soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to Autism in Real Life. This is Elia Walsh, and if you like the show, please hit subscribe so you can get notified each time a new episode is released. I also offer training, consultations, and parent coaching, and would love to help you in any way that I can. You can check out my offerings at thespectrumstrategy.com, and when you join my email list, you can get a code to receive a discount off of an online class or a coaching session. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you next time.